When Congress passed and the president signed the CARES Act, it dropped more than a trillion dollars into the economy. If that was like an earthquake, now it's time for the aftershocks as oversight of that spending gets underway. The Special Inspector General for Pandemic Response, Brian Miller, was confirmed by the Senate last week. With some perspective on what to expect, we turn to two partners at the law firm Seward & Kissel. First, we have Michael Considine, former supervisory federal prosecutor. Mr. Considine, good to have you on. It's good to be with you, Tom. And Robert Caruso is formerly with the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency and of the SEC. Bob, good to have you on. Good to be with you as well. All right, Brian Miller has a big job ahead, and I don't know how you oversee a trillion dollars that was spent in nine weeks. How would you characterize the first thing he's got to do once he has settled into the office? Well, his first order of business, I think, is to address how he's going to interface with you know the various constituents that he's working with. For example, there's a Congressional Oversight Committee, as you know which has been appointed to be involved in this process of overseeing the expenditures. And then there's a Pandemic Response Accountability Committee, which is comprised of 21 inspector generals chaired by, I think, Mr. Glenn Fine, who was the inspector general of the Department of Defense. So just coordinating his activities, making sure they're not stepping on each other and operating in an efficient and thorough fashion sounds to me like one of his first tasks, along with obviously ensuring that he has the appropriate team to assist him in that office. Sure. And Bob, of course, this is a little different than, say, the relief spending that happened in the financial collapse 12 years ago, because it was easier to count the entities that the money went to and how it was used. Here it went to thousands and thousands. I'm not sure anyone knows how many places. What are the difficulties in overseeing all of that? Well, Tom, you're exactly right on that point. Again, I think there were a lot of lessons learned from the financial crisis that proved beneficial in connection with the COVID-19 crisis. However, it's a much more, in my judgment, it's a, a much more complicated mosaic, as you point out, You know, trillions of dollars have been involved. Again, it happened very quickly. The stimulus had to hit the market very rapidly, whether it was the PPP program, whether it was coronavirus. And we represent a number of both public and private parties that have been involved one way or another in connection with this. The requirements are complicated. The procedures for accounting for expenditures Eligibility requirements in some cases are difficult to concern, but again, the speed, the warp speed that this went out with, which quite frankly, I think is a tribute to Treasury and the other agencies, was not perfect, but given the time constraints that was faced, it's quite impressive, but nonetheless very complicated, and in terms from an enforcement perspective or a compliance perspective for the recipients of the money, it's one that has a lot of issues that uh, need to be paid attention to. Sure. And now this money did go to some large and some traded companies, and you would presume they have good regulatory and compliance processes in place, but it also went to thousands and thousands of mom and pop places and small companies. So does the best place to begin looking at things start with those that received the money, or does it start with the processes of the agencies responsible for dispersing it? As you say, Treasury and the Small Business Administration are two, I think, that come to mind. Well, maybe I can jump in and Mike can uh, add to it as, as he see fits. Again, you have to look at a number of these programs. With PPP, for example, much of the money, quite frankly, close to all of the money, has been already dispersed. Same thing is true, for example, of the coronavirus, where the grants were made. It was basically 
done on population to the states and other political subdivisions. So in many cases, not all, the money has already been dispensed. So you have, Tom, as I think you were alluding to, given that one of the key elements of the purposes of these programs was to get the stimulus out into the marketplace very quickly, we have a situation where, again, the front-end enforcement mechanisms, for example, you referenced SBA, well, typically when one goes to uh, apply for an SBA loan, it's like uh, any other loan, you're going to have to file an application, you're going to have to provide financial information, you're going to have to provide other information, and wait to see whether it's granted. In this case, uh, the grants were made largely on certifications, so what that means is the enforcement mechanism from a compliance standpoint will come after the fact. So there's a much heavier emphasis, I think, on terms of after the fact. And that, quite frankly, looking at that, whether it's going to be on a sampling basis by the agencies, you know, et cetera, and looking at, you know, as you also point out, there were multi-million dollar grants here. Other cases, it may be a, literally $10,000 uh, to a, a very small business that received a grant, and whether it becomes what was a loan initially becomes eligible to be a grant that is forgiven. You know, these are all requirements, and so the enforcement mechanisms here are largely after the fact. Sure. Mike, anything to add? Right now, we've seen some prosecutions already in early May. There were prosecutions in Rhode Island, uh, also in the state of Washington, with recipients of funds under the Paycheck Protection Program, commonly known as PPP, have been prosecuted for falsifying applications and the like. So I think, as Bob said, a lot of this is going to be in the back end, but I will point out that the Treasury has issued FAQs and the like in an effort to give some guidance, you know, add some clarity to some of the language that was confusing in terms of eligibility and the like. We're speaking with Michael Considine, former Supervisory Federal Prosecutor, and Bob Caruza, formerly with the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency and the SEC, both now partners at the law firm Seward and Kissel. And do you feel that Brian Miller, you know, based on your federal experience and having worked in federal offices, will he have adequate systems, literally information technology systems and data available to be effective in this? Because when it comes to disbursements of grants and funds and to counting the dollars and contractors, it can get pretty tangled. It's a good question, Tom. That would be one of his first steps to assess you know, what he has available. The office has a $25 million appropriation, and I'm sure he'll be looking at those dollars and using them in the right fashion. And to the extent that what he has in place is inappropriate, would probably reach out to try and get uh, you know, vendors and the like to provide him with assistance. But as you pointed out earlier, you know, Mr. Miller has been around the block before. In addition to having been a federal prosecutor, he was also an IG. So I think he knows his way around this space. I don't know him personally, but it's not as if he's an appointee who comes with no experience. Being a federal prosecutor in the Eastern District of Virginia and then being an inspector general gives you some background to assume this requirement and you know, tackle these tasks. Sure. And Mike, as a prosecutor, how does someone like Brian Miller, how does his office make a decision on when to simply say, you know, well, this was wrong, but we have to kind of let it go or maybe ask for the money back versus when do you prosecute? Is there a dollar threshold that makes it worthwhile? There's a number of factors that federal prosecutors consider in recommending charges to be filed. And, you know, they do include dollar amounts for sure. There's also a deterrent value. So even if the dollar amount is small, but if the activity was uh, improper uh, and, and can be proven in court beyond a reasonable doubt, 
then prosecutors will bring charges forward in any event. So it's not just dollar amount, but there's a number of factors, including deterrence, letting the public know that we're out there watching these funds and bring people who abuse those funds to justice. Depends on the number of cases they have, the resources they have. Unfortunately, for federal prosecutors these days, you cannot always bring every case you'd like to, given resources. So you have to prioritize and make a determination of which is the best case to file. But you could imagine a scenario where, say, I don't know, I'm making this up, a chain of bakeries that constitutes a small business took loans for all of the bakeries, and then the guy bought a Maybach and is driving around and didn't hire anybody back. That's the kind of thing that could result in prosecution, even though it's a relatively small potatoes affair. Yes, and in fact, some prosecutions along the lines you're describing have already occurred. Some of the ones I just mentioned earlier have been you know, relatively small amounts of money. I believe that one in Washington was just a little bit more than a million. So you're right. They will be bringing cases, even if the dollar amounts are relatively small, to the extent that the facts uh, support a prosecution. And the other thing to point out is there's a lot of collaboration going on between and among the SBA, FDIC, the FBI, IRS. In a lot of these cases, some of these agencies are collaborating and providing information to assist the government in bringing these criminal charges. And Bob, how long do you think this will take? I mean, the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction is still going. I don't know whether the TARP people are still going or not, but these things tend to have a long tail. Can this be wrapped up with a period at some point? You mentioned TARP, and TARP, there are facets of it still going on. So we anticipate that this also will have a long tail to it. And again, coming back and maybe just amplifying a little bit on the point that was just being discussed, Again, coming back that over $2 trillion have been dispersed at this point in time, there's going to have to be a sampling of what is it. So whether it's deterrent, again, you have such a wide range of, you know, either public, you know, governments that have received money in the case of coronavirus or PPP, which ranges from the smallest of businesses to some, you know, rather large, in some cases, public businesses or regulated businesses in some cases, which will have other implications, collateral implications, in terms of their compliance issues, there's going to have to be a sampling of this and cases that are brought from a, you know, I use this term advisedly, you know, regulation by enforcement, uh, where there are going to be examples. Again, we'll have that deterrent effect that Mike indicated, and that's going to be the purpose, because they're not going to be able to pursue the full gamut of the cases that are out there. There's going to have to be that prioritization very selectively, at least in my view, in terms of doing this, given the magnitude of what is involved. And so I think Mr. Miller has a bit of a Herculean task before him, together with the rest of the compliance enforcement complement that has been assembled in other areas. But it's one that, given his background, I think he's a terrific selection for the position. Robert Caruza is formerly with the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency and of the SEC. Thanks for joining me. You're quite welcome. And Michael Considine is a former supervisory federal prosecutor. Thank you also. Thanks for having us, Tom. And they're both now partners at the law firm Seward and Kissel. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffel Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on. 
and you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.